0: There in the corner.
1: What is going on everybody? Alex with Hidden Falls Media here. We are back with another incredible episode. I've been waiting for weeks to get this one recorded with my man Andy here. But before (laughs) we get into the episode, I want to remind you of the fee. We don't run ads, we don't pitch you any type of product on the show. We don't try to give you, you know, the digital marketing guru course, whatever that is out there. We bring the highest quality guests and the best guests that we can find on here to help improve your life in the most tactical ways possible. Whether that's entrepreneurship, mindset, business development, marketing, we're here to serve and to give back to this incredible community that helps keep our great nation alive. If you found a nugget of wisdom or insight out of the show, or if something that a guest said really moved you and touched you, please, please, please hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot to us, but it also means even more to our guests. They graciously volunteer their time, energy, and resources to help grow the podcast, and it would mean the world to us and to them to help see that reflected backwards. Today's guest is Mr. Andy Luttrell. Andy, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, yeah. Thanks for having me on.
1: Of course. I've been super excited about getting you on for a while. Um, I first had you as a professor, actually, inside of Ohio State, and you taught my social psychology class. So... You know we were talking a little bit before the show started about you know what really motivated me to want to come and talk to you and bring you back into the fold of my life and how that how i think it can bring a lot of value to the audience why don't you tell people a little bit about who you are and what you do
0: sure yeah so i uh we, we met at ohio state i went to grad school at osu got my phd in 2016 and now i'm a assistant professor at ball state university so my Day to day life is teaching and research, and the research I do tends to focus on persuasion, attitude change, public opinion, and all, all the stuff in that area.
1: And you also have an amazing podcast, too.
0: Yeah, so that's very exciting. So, this is otherwise I wouldn't have this microphone. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I have a, a relatively new podcast called Opinion Science which is uh, all about the science of opinions and persuasion, where opinions come from, how they change. Uh, Most of those episodes are interviews with social scientists, some of whom I've known for a long time, some of whom are new to me, um, and professionals. I think that's been a fun uh, foray to, to move into, which is, uh, polling pundits, people who talk about the polls on on media, uh, on news channels and all that, campaign managers, uh, film reviewers, people who are in the business of understanding and shaping opinions. So yeah, podcast is one. And then I have stuff all around the internet too on helping spread the word of, of social psychology.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I really admire about what your show does is you take super super academic-based ideas and topics, and you break it down really well into easily digestible bites. So for those of you that haven't checked out Opinion Science yet, I know I've mentioned it at least two or three times on this show, and once in one of our Facebook groups as well. Um, please go check it out. It's an amazing show. Hit that subscribe button for him and leave them a review. So for the questions I wanted to get into, I really wanted to talk about what is persuasion psychology and what does the role of persuasion play in our life? Because oftentimes it has a very negative context meaning to persuasion. They think of it as very underhanded or very under the table, but persuasion is really not that. It really has to do with a lot of our identity and what we associate with meaning to. How would you start to address some of these issues and try to put some real uh, definition or clearness around what this actually is?
0: Sure. So persuasion, I think if you were to v- define it really broadly, as, as I tend to do, is any a- anything that serves to change attitudes. And in psychology we use this word attitude. Just to mean sort of overall, are you seeing something as positive or negative, right? So my attitude toward McDonald's is just whether I like or dislike that place, right? My attitude toward a political candidate is whether I support or oppose that person. So persuasion is anything that gets me to take where I am now and move me in either direction. Um, Most of the time, that's through communication. Sort of the prototypical example would be a set of arguments delivered by a person that is sort of trying to to move your opinion on something, but it can be all sorts of other things too, right? Like the fact that your friend supports that political candidate Mm -hmm. serves as a persuasive nudge to your own support, right? So we'd say that that's still trying to move your attitude around. So sort of in the grand scheme, I, I would sort of define persuasion as just anything that moves your attitudes, opinions, or beliefs around.
1: Yeah, that's, I like that definition a lot. That's really good. Um, One of the things I wanted to bring you on to talk about was this concept of in groups versus out groups and how that applies to our daily life and where we really see this kind of, as you will, like all the pieces hit the table. How do they fall? Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you go into in groups versus out groups and how that typically plays out in most of our lives?
0: Yeah. So in, I would say, yeah, in terms of fundamentals of social psychology, attitudes are one and groups are another. So uh, the idea of in-group, out-group, I don't know the actual origins, but it's, it's most often associated with this thing called social identity theory, which goes back decades um, to some of the early work by a guy named Taj Fell, who was interested. the story that I understand is he was interested in like, okay, how can we understand the divisions that we see between groups, right? Like, where is that coming from? And he sort of started to ask that question by starting with a blank slide, He says, let's just strip everything away, right? Everything that makes one group another and let's just make it as simple as, are you in my group or are you not in my group? And they, they do these things that they call, min- they make minimal groups, which is to say, they use almost no good reason as a justification for forming groups, right? So I can be like, um, raise your hand if your birthday is, if the date of the month that your birthday falls on is below 15 or above 15, you'd go that, means nothing right that has no actual meaning to it and yet all of a sudden i've got the early monthers and the late monthers and that i just started with that and so tashville was like okay if we start with that let's establish a baseline for how people act toward one another when we start at that level and then we'll start to layer on the stuff that really matters like social status and history and opportunity and access to resources but what he found was that's you you all of a sudden are gonna get prejudiced if you just have some group at all, right? If you have almost no reason to form a group that can be sufficient to get people to adopt an identity, right? So people who are early monthers become a little suspicious of the late monthers and the late monthers would rather give money to their their fellow late monthers than to the early monthers. Again, because there's no good reason for it except that one is an in-group, which is the group I belong to, And the other is the out-group, which is just whichever group I'm not a part of. So that's sort of the seed of of in-group, out-group. And once you see groups that way, anything becomes a group, right? And we we move through our lives gaining a sense of who we are by thinking about the groups that we belong to and the groups we don't belong to.
1: So how does that play out with identity? Because, well, let me back this up and kind of preface this. Do you think identity is flexible? And if so, or if not, how does this play a role into that?
0: What do you mean by is identity flexible?
1: Yeah, like we, we have the stereotype of um, like what who I am and what I believe in and what my beliefs are attached to and how that contributes to my inward identity and my outward identity. How do in-groups and out-groups play a role with how I perceive myself and how I, how others perceive me?
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah, so to go back to the, the notion of social identity theory, which is where in-group, out-group comes from, there's sort of a two-way street there where the idea is that a lot of our sense of identity comes from our social identity, which are the groups that we belong to. So yes, my identity is in part like how I grew up, my personality traits, like the things that are just kind of like me stuff, but there's a bunch of group related things there too, right? Like my job is a social identity. My racial identity is a social identity. My uh, hometown is a social identity. My language is, is a social identity or can be. And so the idea is that we want to have positive identities like we want, we'd love to be great. Right? <laughs> like that makes a lot of sense, feels very nice. There's, there's evidence to show that there's this motive that we have to feel like we're doing okay in the world. And one of the ways we can accomplish that is to make sure that the groups we belong to are the good groups, right? And so, so long as I'm in the good group, then I'm a good person, right? And if my group succeeds, I sort of (laughs) rightly or wrongly take that success as my own. The problem comes if there's any indication that maybe your group is not so great. So people mm-hmm. will distort ideas of like, well, I, I need my group to be the good one because mm-hmm. I need to feel okay. And that can motivate kinds of thinking where you're sort of giving benefits of the doubt for your own group, but demonizing another group is a way to sort of continue to feel good. And if something about a group you belong to is like unsalvageably bad, we can distance our identity from it, sure. right? And we can say, I don't, I don't know that this is going to be as clear a piece of the me question as it used to be. So I think that gets a little bit at, at your point about flexibility. Yeah, it,
1: it sounds like it's almost narrative or story based at that point. What's the story that I'm telling myself or what's the story that I'm seeing kind of told around me?
0: Sure. Yeah. So you're, you're building the version of you or, or we, yeah, This the, narrative of yourself psychologists call it a more boring thing which is your self-concept but i think it's the same same idea
1: so i mean that really that really plays out a lot of what we've seen recently especially with what's going on i mean you brought up the idea earlier of you know talking about people that are in political polling and what the stories are around that and how that's played out where from your perspective what's it been like to witness 2020 and this idea, and this idea of, you know, from the perspective of group identity and having this kind of ripple effect that we've seen go across the United States?
0: Yeah, I don't think you have to just look at 2020 to see it. I mean, I, it maybe is putting a magnifying glass on some of it, but this has been a, it's been a thing for a long time. However, I think some of the data are pretty clear that politics were not always a very strong part of people's identity. Mm -hmm. So you go back to the fifties. Yes, there were Democrats, there were Republicans, people had different ideas about how the country should be operated, but it wasn't so much like a question of who am I, who are my people? It was more like, are you a Coke person or a Pepsi person? Right. Those are not Uh. often central to identity, although maybe, maybe they are to you, Uh, (laughs) but uh, so, yeah. So, so I think we see a lot more of that, identity group or, or yeah po- political identity and, and social identity overlap these days. And it plays out also in uh, the, the, the evidence on echo chambers is actually not that great, but people certainly suspect that there's this phenomenon that people just sort of flock toward people who are in their group. And that sort of presents only one side of the story. And so you have these two groups going around with a totally separate idea about what the world is. And it's because they're just... Um, mingling with the people who share those identities that they have.
1: Yeah, the echo chamber idea is really interesting, because you you definitely hear that, right? And that's a buzzword that's been going around for probably the last two years, especially in the context of social media land. But what's interesting, though, is that when you talk to people on the street, or you you know run into somebody at a restaurant, generally, they're all pleasant. And it's never like this weird, awkward moment that it's like, oh, my gosh, they're not am I going to get the same feedback that I put into them just because they want to be socially polite? Like, no, like most of the time, it's a really great pleasant experience. And there's even times where you can have differing beliefs and opinions with people. And it actually ends up being productive for both individuals. And it's not this big, big clash or big feud that we typically associate with somebody that doesn't agree with me.
0: And, and there's some cool recent work on like perceived polarization. So when you look at actual opinions in the country, like political opinions, The left and the right haven't... When you talk about like the public, like just people in the world, Mm -hmm. there's not been like a huge change over time in how extreme the average person's views are. But what has tended to change is people's perceptions that there's polarization, right? So when you ask people, you know, if I asked a Democrat this question, what would they say? If I asked a Republican, what would they say? People expect those answers to be on opposite ends of the continuum. But if you look at actual like national polls... It's it's way. I mean, they disagree on the issue, but not sure. nearly as much as we think they do.
1: Is that a lot of like media bias and just people swinging towards one side or the other?
0: I I don't know the evidence for this, but my suspicion is it's something of an availability heuristic. Um, so, availability heuristic is this idea that um, we over-perceive something to the extent that we can bring it to mind easily, right? So the classic example is like how many people or, or what kills more people each year, car accidents or, or plane crashes. And people are like, oh my God, I hear about plane crashes. It seems like it just the news. If there's a plane crash, I hear about it. And it seems like they happen way more often than they do, but it's just because the one time a plane crashes, you hear about it. Whereas cars crash constantly and you just don't hear about it. So I think- There's probably some of that in the media sphere where you go, the extreme vocal contingents get more airtime, but most people are the more centrist (laughs) uh, or, or just, just not as extreme. um, And and you just don't hear from them as often. So we sort of distort our reality based on what it is that we're seeing.
1: Can you go into heuristics a little bit though? That's not something we've brought up on the podcast before. And I think it would be interesting to kind of dissect that a little bit.
0: Yeah, the the notion of a heuristic is just that when people are making judgments, it's hard to be rational all the time. So if I were to ask you, you know, what what is more common words that start with the letter R or words where R is the third letter in the word? You'd go, I could answer that rationally by going through a dictionary and counting up every word that satisfies each condition. And then I know, but nobody has the time for that, right? So evolutionarily or um, just as, as products of making efficient decisions, there are sort of adaptations that are these sort of quick little decision rules that people employ pretty often as a way to sort of quickly get to a decision, right? So I don't have to rationally think, but I can go, okay, I could list 10 words that start with R and I can't easily list any words where R is the third letter. And so it just kind of feels like in that case, there are more words where R is the first letter. That might be a case where you're mistaken and psychologists like those examples because they really prove that, that people are using the heuristic because you, you, ha- the only way you get the wrong answer is if you're using this heuristic, but really, it's not a bad strategy, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you're like, what's more common, people who eat uh, eggs for breakfast or people who eat, I don't know, rocks for breakfast, you go, well, I don't know anyone who eats rocks for breakfast, so that probably doesn't happen very often. You go, yeah, no, that's, that's a good way to answer the question. I don't have to survey everyone in the world to answer that question. I can use a pretty simple heuristic. So heuristics are just sort of those little rules of thumb that people will lean on to make their decision making and judgment life easier than than being perfectly rational twenty four seven.
1: It seems like that exposes us to a lot of biases. It because can, we're but like, using these cognitive shortcuts, right?
0: Yeah, but like, like I said, that it does sometimes, which mm-hmm. is why psychologists love it because it lets us say people are irrational. But really, most of the time, they're not awful, right? Now, so <laughs> to get back to in-group, out-group, right? One of the things we could call a heuristic in some sense is a stereotype about a group. Mm-hmm. And you'd say, well, there's a case where the costs of making that error, right? Of over-assuming, you know, someone based just on their, their origin story, their gender, whatever, is a pretty costly cost, right? Maybe in some circumstances, stereotypes developed to be useful in some way just to ease up decision-making, but there's a case where we really care about the bias, right? Whereas you go, oh, if I sort of can't tell you what letter is the most common letter in the alphabet, fine. Yes, I'm biased, but, but who cares, really? It's, it's serving me more often than it's, than it's uh, failing me. Sure.
1: You brought up an interesting topic of stereotypes. And one of the things that I see a lot is the, mis- the misidentification of the differ- of what is a prejudice versus a stereotype. Do you mind going into
0: that? Would love to. So I, I think prejudice, stereotypes, prejudice, discrimination is for whatever reason, most of my teaching is in that area. No, none of my research is really in that area, but this distinction is what I make every semester. So um, you, you can think of, I'll, I'll even throw discrimination into the mix because it's often sort of like this trinity of ideas that people often just kind of feel like are all the same thing. And yet they tap into similar kinds of stuff, but ultimately they're different from each other. So the stereotype is the kind of belief part of the equation. So these are like specific assumptions that you make of someone based on some group that they belong to, some identity that they have. So if I'm assuming how friendly you'll be right before I meet you, but based on some information I have about you, I know where you're from, I know who your friend is, those are sort of loose stereotypes where I go, okay, I'm, I am kind of am making a guess about what this person's going to be like. And that doesn't have to be, I like this person, I don't like this person, I'll avoid. It's just, I'm making an assumption about you before I get to know you. That's the stereotype piece. The prejudice part is the, do I like you? Do I not like you? Right? So the prejudice part cares less about any specific assumption that I'm making and more about just Am I willing to sort of engage with you and sort of feel good about you? Or am I gonna be sort of suspicious and and, uh, back off-ish? And the discrimination is where that stuff actually becomes the choices you make, the behavior that you enact in the world. So until I actively avoid you, (laughs) I'm not discriminating, but as soon as I'm making a choice to say, I don't know this person, but because of their religion, I don't wanna have lunch with them, then that's discrimination because now, now a choice that I've made in the world is being biased by something about you.
1: Yeah. Um, Where do we see this play out in a lab? And if I remember correctly, there's like these uh, flashing pictures and word associations, right. Mm -hmm. That go along with uh, interesting. Am I right on this? Like there's that flashing test of images that we can test this with.
0: Yeah. I don't know flashing, but I think I know what you're talking about. So you, you're, you see a bunch of stuff on a screen and then you have to click a button based on what you're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, what they call the implicit association tests. And so the the reason why we have something like this is that when it comes to like a scientist trying to understand prejudice, one way is to go around asking people, hey, are you prejudiced about this group? And plenty of people would say no, (laughs) even if truly they have some sort of bias, right? And so A test like this implicit association test is a way of being like, can we capture snap judgments that people are making that over time demonstrate a bias? Mm. So the way that particular thing works is I'm seeing pictures of people, let's say, and I'm categorizing them as black or white, right, based on the picture that I see. And then if I see a word, I'm categorizing it in terms of whether it's a good word or a bad word, right? So I see wonderful, I go, that's a good one. I see Death, I go, well, it's a bad one, right? And so I'm trying to juggle both of these things at the same time. And the way this test works is to say, do you get confused more when you play this game when the same key is for black and good than when the same key is for black and bad, right? So you go, I'm really doing two things that are separate from each other, but if my brain is connecting black and bad as a prejudice, It's going to be harder for me to use the same hand to say black and good, right? Because my brain goes, no, just put all the bad stuff on one side and all the good stuff on the other side. And so this test is sort of looking very quickly, like how long is it taking you to make these judgments? Mm. And if you slow down when the labels get squirrely, then that shows you have a stronger bias. Whereas if I can just as easily do the game, if it's black bad on one side versus black good on one side, then it, it suggests that I'm not connecting those two concepts together.
1: So where can we turn with this, right? We see, and this is one of the things I think you're so great at, is taking all this really interesting and complex data and making it something that the average everyday consumer can actually understand and start to implement. So looking at, you know, the in-groups versus out-groups, looking at the way that we approach persuasion-based psychology, what are some of the ways we can implement this into our life to make our lives easier or better?
0: Oh gosh. Okay. And just in general, just make sure. your life better, period. Sure.
1: I mean, <laughs> and even if it's a one or 2% shift that we can make in our life.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, the obvious story is we could reduce our stereotyping and prejudice as a social good <laughs> of the world. Um, and some of that comes with attention to understanding how it works and understanding that like that, that, Implicit association test is very useful because it can help reveal that like, oh, maybe I didn't want to think I had a bias. And yet it did get a little harder when those labels switched. Right. And you go, I may, I still have not necessarily discriminated against a person, right. I still may not have like made this sort of harsh moral judgment of a person, but now I have learned that, that maybe my brain has a little more bias in it than I recognized. And and that's useful to to know, to go, oh, well, this is now a thing I can be attentive to. And we know that when people are more attentive and they can understand the circumstances when they might make a biased judgment and they can sort of think about a strategy to replace that with a more um, individuating judgment. Meaning, let's say I learn about myself that in this situation, I'm quick to assume that person A is whatever, right? I, I assume that they're not going to be very nice to me. I could learn that and go, well, okay. Next time I'm in that situation, let me notice it, and then instead of make a judgment that's biased, let me try to learn one thing about that person, right? And and know that that will be a unique thing about that person, um, and that can go a long way to try to reduce those biases, and and be more open to to talking about them. I think some of these. Issues of bias are issues because we try to pretend that they're not there. Um, but who knows? I, I, I don't pretend, pretend to hold the key to, to all of the answers, and I'm still learning myself. But I, I don't think there's really any harm to opening yourself up to the possibility that, that you have more bias than you realize. Um, with the persuasion stuff, I think maybe one of the things that is an interesting lesson is how useful it can be just to try to communicate your point with people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think people have this idea that like, people are closed off, kind of like you were saying, right? You go, Republicans are like this and Democrats are like this, and so I'm not gonna talk to them. But you go out in the world and you talk to people and you go, oh, look at all these nice people out here (laughs) who are perfectly happy to talk about all sorts of different things. And there's some cool research showing, you know, on the one hand that if you, like force yourself to start a small talk conversation, difficult, more difficult these days, but force yourself to start a small talk conversation with someone, you end up happier as a person, right? So they do these studies where they go like, people are about to get on the train to go into the city for their job. And they get an envelope that says, we want you to sit quietly for your train ride and like think about things. Or they get a a letter that says, we want you to strike up a conversation with the person sitting next to you. And if you ask people, everybody goes, I do not want to strike up a conversation <laughs> with the person sitting next to me. That will be awful and horrible. But what they find is that at the end, once they get to the train station, they have them fill out a survey that's like a, in a postmarked envelope and put it in the, in the mail. And what you find is that people actually have a way better time if they struck up a conversation with someone Um, And we also know that people don't think they can be influential, that they don't have persuasive influence, that we go, no one's going to listen to me. But these kinds of studies also show that if you just ask people to try and be like, try to get them to do a favor for you, people are way more willing to help you out than we give them credit for. So I think in all of this, there's maybe a humility uh, lesson to to be gained when you learn about psychology. And I think for me, social psychology is... I mean, that's been the greatest benefit to me is I'm a little more understanding of other people and a little more um, understanding of myself.
1: Do you think it's that you feel better when you're done with that interaction because you've achieved something that you thought was difficult or outside of your comfort zone and it Hmm. opened up that new kind of avenue of, hey, I can actually do something that I didn't think, you know, it's, it's not part of my daily habit, right? It's not part of my daily ritual to talk to the stranger on the train next to me. So because I've accomplished something hard and I've done something outside of my comfort zone, there's an area of growth. And we know that from research that, you know, growth is one of the six human needs that we truly gravitate towards. Do you think that that could be part of that purpose and that drive?
0: Yeah, it could It could be that that it's precisely because people think they won't be able to do it or won't enjoy it that makes it enjoyable. I mean, that can't be the only part of the equation. And presumably there are other things that wouldn't, work that way there's something very social and um like connecting with other people is something that is time and again correlated with well-being Mm. and so you'd go okay are there things that maybe i don't think i could do but if i found out i could do them i would go okay (laughs) i don't i don't really care (laughs) that's fine but but to have like a conversation with a stranger is inherently um Rewarding in itself. And then I think you're right that on top of that, there's this feeling of like, gosh, that's way better than I thought it would have been. So those two things together make it even more meaningful.
1: That's awesome. And I want to be super respectful of your time. I know you're really busy where can people find you? How can they learn more about your podcast and the work that you're doing?
0: Sure. So the, the podcast again is opinion science, and you can go to opinionsciencepodcast.com or on Twitter or Facebook, wherever you get stuff like that. Um, My work and research is at andyluttrell.com and I don't know, Google my name, something will come up.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Guys, that episode was absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for joining in. Once again, if you found a nugget of wisdom, if there's any level of insight, or you just loved hearing Andy's amazing voice, because he definitely has the voice for podcasting, (laughs) please make sure you leave us a review. Go make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Go check out Opinion Science. Some of the episodes on there are absolutely mind-blowing. It's one of my favorite ones to listen to while I'm out on a run. So please, as always, my call to action to you today is to go make somebody smile. It's amazing what a level of impact it can leave on their life.